Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in Jesus, both in his words, but also in his life, a life of great sacrifice for your glory and for our joy. And Father, may we, as his people, be willing to go outside the camp. Father, grant to us um, wisdom to understand these words and to find them um, to be wisdom to us uh, in spite of their initial difficulty. Father, grant to us such a vision of your kingdom and your glory, um, such beauty, such excellence, such power, such <coughs> majesty. That Father, all the things of this world, even the things that we love most dear, would seem faint and a shadow compared to the substance and the reality that you are. Father, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Many, many of you know that I have a, a particular love for the Waldensians. They are a people, uh, Christians in northern Italy and in uh, southern France, uh, partic- that were particularly persecuted in the 16th and 17th centuries and um, harassed terribly, in, in fact, um, burned at the stake and... and, and what was done to them is, is would be almost objectionable to say in in front of you and uh, and yet they were faithful and they were solid in their faith and they were filled with joy in the midst of difficulty um, I, many years ago, I shared with you how how they would often be burned at the stake and and while being burned at the stake they would they would sing songs of praise while dying it's it seems hard to imagine. Their captors, of course, not even wanting that to exist, would gag them before putting them on the pile of wood. And, and, uh, and they were known to lean into the fire to burn the gag so they could continue to sing. Now, that's, that's otherworldly. The, the joy and the, the suffering, it's hard to grasp for us. I mean, what, what do you think when you hear that? Are you encouraged or are you threatened as to how would you respond? I mean, does it impress you? Does it draw you? Or does it kind of frighten you? You know, I think we've learned well enough in these eight weeks that, that the wisdom of the kingdom is paradoxical to human reason. And it is absolutely contrary to the values of this world. I mean, Jesus here, we're at the top of the ladder now. Remember how Spurgeon, these Beatitudes are a ladder, and the higher you get, the more difficult they seem? And they do from a worldly perspective. But he mingles joy and suffering, two things that we would not mingle. But Jesus wants us to get to know this. This is very important. You notice that in in verse 10 is the Beatitude. 11 and 12 is really a repeat of the Beatitude. It's an extension of it. And you'll also notice when we read that he goes from the third person, blessed are those who are persecuted, to the second person, blessed are you. He's speaking right at them. Such is the importance of this beatitude. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 5, and I'll read 10, 11, and 12. You can keep your Bibles open to it as we'll refer to it. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, 
For your reward is great, exceedingly great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, so let, me just, let me just show or try to share with you where we're going here. He's going to speak, obviously, about the reality of persecution. This is a reality for the Christian. He's going to give us reasons why it comes so that we all know what makes, right, what makes proper persecution and, and then a response to that persecution. That's all I want to do today is just walk through those very, very simply. First, the persecution is a reality for the Christian or should be. Now, we've seen this, right? This is the eighth beatitude. All the beatitudes I've been preaching to you are marks of the kingdom within a person. So mourning and meekness and mercy and purity of heart and peacemaking, those identify the Christian. So these beatitudes are like pearls on a string. They're all together. It isn't that we, well, I've got the mourning thing down. I don't want the last one. No, they're all part of who the dweller of the kingdom is. And, and you're known. The evidence you have is not simply some spiritual moment you had when you were 12. The evidence that God has done a work in you is through the evidence of these beatitudes existing in your life. And so just as mourning and meekness and purity of heart and seeking reconciliation, just as those mark the believer, so does persecution. But not only that, look in verse 11. He says this, he says, but Blessed are you when others revile you. He doesn't say blessed are you if or perchance others might revile you. It's when. It's expected. The Christian expects to face persecution. The one who dwells according to these principles of the kingdom will expect to have persecution. Now, all persecution isn't bodily persecution. It does include that for sure. And the church has a history littered with persecution of the bodily type. Prisons, beatings, torture, death, absolutely. But it's more than that. In fact, for us, it's, it's more of the civilized persecution, if you will. More of the garden variety of persecution, which is more of a verbal injury, not a bodily injury. And this verbal injury, Charles Spurgeon said, it's the persecution of the tongue. It's the reviling, the insults, the mocking, the jesting you being a topic of conversation in the office because of the position that you may take on certain things. This is the persecution that we face, not just a, a verbal injury, but perhaps a reputational injury that they'll revile you, they'll talk about you, they'll make fun of you, you won't be invited to things, that sort of thing. He says that's to be expected. See, Jesus wants to shatter any illusions for us as Christians that life is going to be in this world where you want to be. In other words, Jesus is going to shatter the illusion that, oh, no, 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 the world's going to accept you and love you and respect you and draw you in. It's not going to be that way. And, and, you know, the early church struggled with this, too. Peter wrote to the the church in Asia Minor, he says, don't be surprised at at the trial that you're undergoing, as if something strange is happening to you. Or John wrote it to his people, 1 John 3, 13, he says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. I mean, Paul said the same thing. All who want to live a godly life will what? They'll be persecuted. So, I mean, that's fundamental to Christianity. In fact, we shouldn't be surprised when we're persecuted. You should be surprised when you don't face some measure of persecution. And and this isn't just for the first century. I mean, you can trace out the persecution of the church all the way from the beginning. Fox's Book of Martyrs, great book uh, written in the... the, um, 17th century that kind of chronicles all the persecution up from the beginning. And then it was added on with chapters following. 
just showing how the church has faced positive. It's not as widespread, perhaps, as you imagine, but it's in every generation. It's very acute today. I, I, I want to I wake you up to the reality that maybe you know at a distance, but the persecution that the church is facing today is at, it's at levels unseen. They, they estimate 45 million people were martyred in the 20th century alone. 131 out of 197 countries right now, Christians face some measure of restriction and persecution. 200 million Christians right now are under some degree of pressure and pushing and threat. I can go aerial or we can go to just Nigeria, northern part, 2011. This this militant group, Hoko Baram, just destroys 350 churches and slaughters over 500 Christians just in 2000, just last year. Just in a small part of Nigeria. And then take that and spread that out. It's a serious issue. It's a reality for us. It's a reality for the church. It's a reality that needs to get our attention. Not in fear. Not in fear, but it's a reality that we have not seen much of. And so we tend to forget about it. But you may be asking, well, why? Why does it have to be such a reality? I mean, why is it this way? Well, Jesus answers that for us. Notice in verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Or in verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account or because of me. In other words, there is going to be persecution to the church that actually lives in line of Jesus' words. The messengers that we are, the followers of Christ, if we're walking in a manner according to the scriptures, we're going to face a degree of persecution. Why? Well, because we are now members of a kingdom. And so we're living according to the, uh, the dictates of a kingdom, and it's going to clash with the culture of this world. So they're going to come head to head. I mean, just walk through the Beatitudes with me. I mean, blessed are the poor in spirit. So to be humble in this world of self-confidence, you tend to get run over. You tend to get abused. Blessed are those who mourn for sin. What a joke. I mean, we have freedom to sin. Nobody can tell us what to do. And so as you mourn over your sin, you look like a fool to people. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek in the age of the strong. Again, there's abuse. There's being run over. Or blessed are the, are the merciful. I mean, the merciful when, when to, to win is to have the upper hand. Again, you, you see that when you really walk out these Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart. So when all the guys are going to Hooters and they ask you, you say, no, I, I don't do that. I don't want to see that. Do you think they're going to commend you for your morality? Or, or blessed are the peacemakers. You get in the middle of a conflict and you want to bring biblical principles. And might you not hear, what are you doing in my business? You have no part of this. You don't have a dog in this fight. I mean, when you walk out these Beatitudes, and and what it's going to show is that when a person really walks out these Beatitudes in a very outward way, gentle, gracious, but outward, you will run into conflict. You will run into persecution. it'll, It'll find you, and Jesus said it would. In John 15, he says, If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world... It would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to this world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. 
Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Why is Jesus always in conflict? He seems like such a nice person. But he's walking according to the values of a kingdom in a place that has the values of the world. You know, Frederick Nietzsche was a philosopher, brilliant man, ended up going mad, dying in 1900. But he penned probably a strongest word against Christianity called the Antichrist. And in this book, he took issue in part with the Sermon on the Mount that we're studying. And uh, he hated it because it was so soft. In an age where power rules, Christianity is a farce. And here's what he wrote about it. He said this. He says, What is more harmful than any vice? Active sympathy for the ill-constituted and weak Christianity. In the entire New Testament, there is only one solitary figure that we are obliged to respect, and that is Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, because he was a man of power. I condemn Christianity. He wrote, the Christian church has left nothing untouched by its depravity. It has made every value a disvalue. Again, you see clearly the values of a kingdom are contrary. Maybe the world cannot express itself with such vitriol as he did. But the world's values are contrary to the values of the kingdom. But it's not just our lives lived out in the Beatitudes. It's not just our lives that will engender persecution. It's the message we carry. People, the gospel of Christ is exclusive in its claims. The gospel of Jesus Christ says all men and women are condemned. All men equally are condemned under God. None are righteous, not one of them. The the, the gospel claims exclusive worship for Christ. Exclusive. That, that, That there isn't Jesus and all these other things. That he is uniquely the God, Savior, Judge that all men have to bow to. This is anathema for the intellectual and to the irreligious. This is, this is foolishness. It's intolerance. To, to the religious, it's deeply offensive because the religious think that they're religious, that God ought to accept me. I'm good. I'm not like all these other people. And when you tell them that even though they're religious, they still need to bow the knee to Christ by faith, repenting of their sin and believing for his salvation, it's offensive. We don't want this exclusive Christ. Polycarp was a bishop in Smyrna, which is modern-day Turkey, in the second century. And he was being burned at the stake for his devotion to Christ. Now, what's interesting about this martyrdom is that if he was just willing to offer incense to the gods, he could have lived. In other words, you can keep worshiping Christ, but we also want you to offer sacrifice to the gods. And if you do that, then then we're fine with you. And he says, I can't do that. In fact, what he said was this. His captor says, where is the harm in just saying Jesus is Lord and offering the incense when it will save your life? I mean, can you believe how tempting that would be if you were about to step onto a stack of wood that would consume your flesh. And he says, 80 and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I then blaspheme my king and my savior? I mean, this is the world. They don't like the exclusivity of Christ. So, so Jesus is saying reality. 
Persecution is a reality. And the reason for that persecution ought to be your lives being lived out with a kingdom flavor and your message being the gospel. Those two things will bring about a measure of persecution. Now, now sadly, much of the persecution that we face in this country tends to be, sadly, I think, oftentimes, generated through not our kingdom lifestyle, but perhaps our judgment and our anger at the culture around us. I remember seeing a Christian group um, lobbying out in front of an abortion clinic, and they were taking their right of speech, and they were yelling and screaming at the young girls going into the abortion clinic. And they looked like monsters. Now, I I realize not all who stand outside abortion clinics do that, but this group did. And I remember thinking, they are expecting the world to act like Christians. Paul says, we don't judge those outside the world. We judge those inside the church. We know the world's lost. And, And much persecution today comes about because of our anger, because of our condemnation of the world, because of our judging the world as they were believers. And and I would say that that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He didn't say, blessed are the persecuted, period. He said, blessed are the persecuted for my sake. In other words, the type of suffering that the church may go through in their rude behavior is more punishment than it is persecution. Now, what Jesus is talking about here is, is when you're willing to speak about creationism, perhaps at the university, or in the office, you're speaking about a, a biblical morality that you're bound by. Or, or, or that you do express your views on the sanctity of life in the womb, but you do it with gentleness and reverence and truth. Or the sanctity of marriage that you express in the public square, but you do it with intelligence and honesty and clarity. I mean, that will engender enough persecution. We don't need any of the other. That will engender persecution for you. And that's what I think he's talking about. Because the reality of persecution is to be fueled by these reasons of for Christ's sake and living in righteousness. Now, thankfully, this can be a very heavy message for us because we don't face this persecution. And so we're sitting here right now wondering, why am I not facing persecution? And and we'll get to that. But look with me at how Jesus encourages us to respond to this kind of persecution. So I want you to know that persecution, that suffering, is, ought to be a reality for the church. We ought to be surprised when we have these seasons where it is so low. The reality is there. The reasons are there. For Christ's sake, not for our sinfulness, not for our, even Peter in chapter 4 says this, don't suffer for doing evil. That's not the right thing. Suffer for doing righteousness. That's a wonderful thing. But look at what Jesus says in terms of encouraging us in response to the suffering. So I'm trying to set before you a theology of suffering. And, and simply this, that, that it, it isn't to get mad. It's not to get even. It's not to get scared. It's not even to become a stoic and just kind of suffer through it. But it is to rejoice. This is the paradoxical wisdom. Look what he says. Blessed are those. Blessed. You're blessed. You're, you're happy. You're approved by God. When you are persecuted for righteousness, saying, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. He says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Now, th- this is, 
This is challenging to try to help you. It's challenging for me. I, I was yesterday just struggling, asking for grace. God, help me to see this great reward. Because it seems so distant and far off when persecution is so near and it's so real. And yet this reward is great. Jesus is clearly trying to move us to be a people that are looking forward, that are looking forward in faith, believing actually that reward is great. It's beyond measure. You cannot even imagine it. Go ahead and try because it will excite you, but you cannot imagine what it will be like. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived all that he has prepared for those who love him. So it's just unbelievable. And so there's a draw to be with God. That God is so majestic, he's so glorious, he's so powerful, and he's so lovely that that is to just consume us so that the temporal risks we face today are nothing to compare with the eternal glory that we have. And so Jesus is saying, yours is the kingdom of God. Yours, yours, each one of you that has come to faith in Christ, that's yours. Great is your reward when you're persecuted. So he's trying to encourage us as a people with this ability to look at today in the reality that God has sovereignly placed us, but also to look and to find this to be the truer reality than this. And you need the Spirit of God to do that. Because today is so real. It's so fleshy. But, you know, this offends people when I just say this. Because, you know, this, this kind of just look in the forward. And nothing for today. In fact, Karl Marx wrote about this very verse. And here's what he said about it. He says this. He says, this is why I hate Christianity. The opium of the people. Great is your reward in heaven, he writes. I'm supposed to trudge through life and not fight injustice and just accept my lot in life. Because later on I'll have a pie in the sky, by and by in the future. Well, he's wrong. Not only because there's more than just that. That's the future blessing. But there is a present blessing. Do you notice Jesus speaking in the present tense? He says, yours is the kingdom. Great is your reward. In fact, if you were to look in Luke's gospel, he says rejoice in that day, that day of persecution, not the day of seeing Christ. That the rejoicing takes place today in the midst of suffering. You say, well, how could that be? How can we rejoice? Well, I just want to remind you of five things, just five thoughts of of how we can rejoice even in the midst of suffering. So when you do face persecution, that you can remember these things and then rejoice in that day. Not just looking forward to the last day. That is a day to look forward to. But rejoicing in this day. Number one, it's going to confirm that you are a child of God. All these Beatitudes have done that. All these Beatitudes are to remind you, as you exercise meekness, as you mourn over your sin each day, repenting, and being saddened over your sin against God. Running to the gospel, feeling the comfort of the gospel come, but you're mourning over your sin as you're seeking to make reconciliation, as you confess the impurity in your heart, as you're seeking to exercise mercy to others. That's all indications to you that the Spirit of God is at work in you. And so persecution adds to that list, that as you're persecuted, you realize This is really a badge of honor. One Lutheran scholar said, it's a medal of honor for you to place upon your chest that it confirms you to be a follower of Christ. Notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 12. He says, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, you join in a line of those who we respect and revere who are in the faith. You join them. 
I mean, the Ezekiels, the Jeremiah's, the Isaiah's, the Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the Daniels, all those who have suffered, you now get in line with that. Charles Spurgeon says, oh, to keep such good company. In fact, he says, this is the heritage of the Lord's messenger. Some they killed, some they stoned, and you joined in that apostolic succession, and what an honor it is to be in that line. So, so there's a confirmation, there's an encouragement to us. Yes, I'm being persecuted for my Lord's sake. This is what the disciples took away. In Matthew chapter 5, it says they called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let him go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Suffering disgrace, profound. Can you imagine the Spirit of God moving in them that they would be rejoicing that I've been identified with Christ and I've suffered like my Savior has suffered for his glory and for the joy of all peoples. That's incredible. But secondly, there's something about suffering here in verse 12 in particular that seems to deepen both our experience of the joy in heaven, but also add to it, add to it somehow. In other words, Jesus isn't just saying, hey, listen, rejoice in the day of suffering because you have a glory. I think he does say that. But he's saying something about this great reward adding to your experience of and pleasure in that glory. And I say that because of what he says. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Now listen, if our suffering didn't somehow add to the enjoyment of glory in heaven, then I don't know what the benefit would be. In other words, if great is your reward to you who don't suffer and you who do suffer, it wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't be the encouragement that I think Jesus is trying to make it to be. He's saying that great is your reward. Those who are suffering, your reward is great. It's going to be greater and greater. In other words, what you do in this life impacts both the glory that you have and the glory that you enjoy in the next life. Jonathan Edwards, that great Puritan minister up in New England in the 18th century, said this. He said, there are different degrees of happiness and glory in heaven. The glory of the saints above will be in some proportion to their imminency in holiness and good works here. Christ will reward all according to their works. He that gained 10 pounds was made ruler over 10 cities, and he that gained 5 pounds over 5 cities. He says, now, this is important to listen to. He says, it will be no damp to the holiness of those who have lower degrees of happiness and glory, that there are others advanced in glory above them. For all shall be perfectly happy. Every one of them shall be perfectly satisfied. Every vessel that is cast into this ocean of happiness is full though there are some vessels larger than others. And there shall be no such thing as envy in heaven, but perfect love shall reign through the whole society. There's something about our suffering now that will add to our glory and the enjoyment of it. And that is to rejoice over. So that when you do suffer, you can be thinking, this has an impact forever. It's not going to go unnoticed. You have to remember that. Thirdly, that this suffering... We can rejoice in suffering today because it deepens our faith. Listen, suffering has a way of reminding us that though we are in the world, we are not of the world. Suffering destroys this illusion that we are self-reliant. Suffering destroys the idea that I can trust in the world systems to take care of me, whether it's a U.S. government or whether it's a pension fund or whatever you have placed your hope in, that suffering will destroy those, no longer being 
that you cannot lean on them, you cannot rely on them. And that's what suffering does. It draws you back to God. It, it, it kind of draws you away from the love of this world and brings you to, to God. In fact, Samuel Rutherford, well, let, let me, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.8, he says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. So that's where Paul's pressed to the, he's pressed to the absolute end. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, so he thought he was going to die. But this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, suffering is like an instrument in the hand of God, where he is drawing us to himself. He's, winnowing, he's drawing us away from the lusts of the world, and he's bringing us to himself through suffering. Samuel Rutherford was a, and I use, I'm particularly heavily laden with illustrations because I just want you to see the history of the church. He was a Scottish divine in the, in the 18th century. A young man died early, uh, spent time in prison. And uh, here's what he writes about his suffering. He said this, he said, I never knew in my nine years of preaching so much of Christ's love as he taught me in Aberdeen by six months' imprisonment. Christ's cross is such a burden as sails are to a ship and wings are to a bird. Then he writes later, he says, Our pride must have winter weather to rot it. Our pride must have winter weather to rot it. It deepens our faith. We see it time and time again. It just doesn't deepen our faith. It actually deepens the faith of others. When you suffer joyfully for righteousness, it's going to challenge other people. It's going to strengthen their faith. Paul gave testimony to this in his letter to the Philippians. He said, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In other words, you see that happening. We see David Brainerd's diary went out that that little-known American missionary that would have died and few would have ever known unless Jonathan Edwards published his, his diary. Well, let me just tell you some of the names that he affected. Robert Murray McShane goes across the pond. He goes to John Wesley, Thomas Coke, William Carey, the great British missionary to India, Henry Martin to the Persians, Samuel Mills, Jim Elliott, Arnarm Judson Gordon. I mean... Great names that we look back and we look at them in, in respect. And they were encouraged in all that they did by Brainerd's example. Same thing. Chet Bitterman was uh, executed by Columbia Grillas in 1981 for being a missionary. Put a bullet through his chest, wrapped him up in their gorilla flag, and left him to be found. He was a Wycliffe missionary. For years following, Wycliffe applications to be missionaries doubled every year. When you see someone faithfully walk through suffering, it engenders confidence in us. And, and, then, and then last, we can rejoice in the day of suffering, not just in that day, but in this day we can rejoice because it displays the gospel of Christ. In other words, your suffering today is going to model for people, it's going to reveal for people what the cross of Christ is teaching. They just don't see it. In other words, it gives a modern-day view 
to what the cross accomplished. Jesus righteously suffering for sin to bring others to salvation. Now you're righteously suffering, not to pay for sin, but to display the work of the Savior. Paul writes this in Colossians. He says, now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. I rejoice in what was suffered, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. Now, I don't think that Paul in any way is saying that Christ's sacrifice is somehow needing addition to it. I think it's more of a current display of that work. In other words, him suffering righteously is going to point to the Christ who suffered righteously. And and this is true. It, It reveals the value of the gospel. When you suffer for Christ willingly, joyfully, the people know that great must be this gospel. So, so Oswald Sanders is, was, he passed away, missionary statesman of the last century from Australia. And a uh, great man, wrote many, many books, very faithful to the end. And uh, he told about this indigenous uh, missionary in India. And he would go from town to town preaching the gospel, being rejected, being scorned. One particular town he went to, he had been walking all day, and... Um, Goes to this town, and they reject him. They throw him out of this town. He goes outside the town and exhausted and just beaten down. He lays underneath a tree and goes to sleep. When he wakes up, the town elders are around him, and they want to listen to what he has to say, and he asks why. Well, when they came out to make sure he was leaving the town, they saw they saw the blisters on his feet from walking in the hot Indian summer. And they understood, so, value, so valuable must this message be to this man that he would walk on blistered feet to share it. And they listened to the presentation of the gospel. Our suffering cast to all the people the value of the gospel and the glory of Christ. Our willingness to endure these things People have to say, even if they don't believe, they have to be able to say, he has a love for the Savior that's unmatched by any love we have for the world. So Jesus is very clear here. We're at the top rung now. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, persecuted for my sake. So the reality of persecution is there. The reasons are clear. It's to be for my sake, for righteousness' sake. But so are the blessings. Yours is the kingdom. You will rejoice in that day. But we can even rejoice in this day. So what do we do with this? Why don't we face persecution? Why don't we suffer more? Have you given thought to that? I I, I would just propose a few reasons. Number one, I I think we do still live in a country uh, that, while I would never have called this nation Christian, Uh, I think that's a debatable issue. Uh, I would say that it has been founded on Judeo-Christian principles, and I think it has always been a country that has taken in the minority and the suffering um, in its early history. And so I think there is is a, a season of time that we have that we have not faced great persecution. But, but I, I would say more so than just that, I would say there's two reasons. I think one is a fear over the culture. Many of us, I think, are in fear of the culture. We don't want to speak up. We, we, we kind of shrink back. We are not being salt in this world. We're not being light to the darkness. Um, the pressure is too great, and we go silent, that our love and our obedience to Christ is muted. 
that, that, that if, there's, if there's something that comes up and someone criticizes the faith, we just say, well, that's their, that's their choice to think that way, and we remain silent. Ken Hughes writes this about it. He says, we smile benignly when God is mocked. We draw no moral judgments. We act like all religions converge on the same road. We take no stand on moral or political issues, and we don't mention hell. And, and if we want to play that game, then we probably will avoid much persecution. But if we are to start speaking with intelligence and with grace and with truth, then it may look different. So I think there's a fear of culture. Secondly, I think there's a removal from culture. I think the Christians in this country particularly have just kind of pulled back into our, our little Christian subcultures. And I think we exercise with Christians, we play with Christians, we eat with Christians, we worship with Christians, we, we do everything with Christians. And, and that we, we actually are not engaged in any intimate or meaningful way with a lot of non-Christians. And so I think that tends to, again, insulate us from our views or your views, and your views are my views, and so we just get along with each other. And there's no conflict, there's no persecution that comes out of that. Oh, we still find persecution in the church amongst it, but it's over stupid reasons. It's over goofy reasons. But that's not what we're talking about here. So what do we do with this? What should we do as a church? Well, well, let me just give you a couple ideas. At a minimum, at a minimum, we ought to use this season that we have to develop a strong theology of suffering. I mean, we ought to take this season and begin to determine, do do I believe what Tom just said? Is this beatitude for me, or am I going to try to follow the first seven and bag the eighth? So I think we need to take this season of time and begin to steal ourselves. In fact, this is what John Calvin said when he was... There was a time, um, oh, it's a great one. Mm. It's a good one. (laughs) I don't have it here. I I hope he wouldn't mind me paraphrasing it, but he said that in this season of time, uh, that in the season of time that God gives you, It is to develop and to understand the glory of Christ so that when you're called to enter the field, you're ready to enter the field of suffering. So so we want to use this time well to think through this. What do we believe? And and are are we dedicating and stealing our minds in the glory of Christ such that he is worthy to be suffered for? And number two, I would say read biographies. I've quoted out of about half a dozen today just to show you Biographies are immensely helpful to show us historically the faithfulness of men and women. I could tell you about John Rogers in the 16th century. He was being brought to be burned over his view of the Lord's Supper from the Roman Catholics. And being brought there, his children, this was, this was testified to by the French ambassador who was there. His children were giving him encouragements to be faithful. And the French ambassador said it was as if they were going to a wedding. So rejoicing were they over it to suffer for the name. That's otherworldly. But it's, it's, we're part of another world. So, so reading biographies is immensely helpful. Thirdly, I would say let's begin praying for the persecuted church. If there's 200 million brothers and sisters who are under thumbscrews right now, why aren't we praying for them? Why aren't we lifting them up? praying for the country, praying for the government, that we would begin, God, have mercy on them, uphold them, strengthen them. 
Fill them with the Spirit that they may find it worthy to suffer. And then fourth, I would say to you, to dwell on the applause of heaven. Think about what it will be. I was reading this morning, just in Revelation chapter 6, about about the souls that were under the altar who had died for the word and the witness. And they said, how long? And God clothes them with white robes because there are more that will have to die for the name. Think about the applause of heaven. Here's, here's what one author wrote when it was with Calvin. Sorry, you don't have to miss that one. And the last one is, is uh, and this is the simplest one, but go make some non-Christian friends. I, I mean, go, go make some friends that are not Christian. Invite them over to your house for dinner. Speak to them. Just engage them. Grab another person from this church and invite a neighbor over. Play games with them. Develop some friendships. Begin to move out of our Christian safe zones and let's begin to, to, to treat this as reality and begin to walk out the dictates of this Sermon on the Mount and these Beatitudes. It's only going to get spicier from here. We leave this ladder and we're going to jump right into some unbelievable things in chapters 5 and 6 and 7. It's profound. So folks, I don't want you to feel condemned right now. I don't want you to feel guilty that you haven't suffered. God appoints suffering. He said that to Paul in in Philippians. He says, for it's been granted to you that that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So God grants this. I'm not looking, as Rice said at the beginning, it's right on. We're not looking for persecution. We're not looking for that. But we want to be ready. And as we begin to walk this out, I think we'll find it. So let, let's have a season of prayer here. We have a few minutes. And, um, and let's pray and ask God for grace to fill us with his spirit. We're praying corporately now, which means I, I would ask you to pray in a way in your mind that includes everybody here, not just yourself. But just as a church, we're going to seek God for grace and strength. We'll pray for a few minutes. Pray loudly so that we can hear you and agree with you. And, and pray briefly so that others may join you in prayer. And we're really having a foretaste of what we'll do in heaven, giving him thanks and praise. Give a word of grace for God to give us such a precious son who would die for us. And then, uh, then we'll be closed in prayer. Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in this word. It is beyond our ability to trace out perfectly, but we would ask for your spirit to illumine our minds regarding our own lives that we would begin to walk with poverty of spirit, that we would mourn over our sins, that we would be meek, and that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness, and that we would be merciful, and that we would pursue purity in heart, and we would seek to be reconcilers, and we would even rejoice over suffering for your glory and for our joy.